If you could turn to 1 Samuel 16, uh, my friend Steve said he was all prepped for 14, and he's so disappointed that I'm going to be teaching out of 16. So, I mean, you know, oh, well. Let me just kind of give you a context, an overview, a bit of a historical perspective when we dive into the chapter. God's purpose, remember, in 1 Samuel is really to record the transition of the nation of Israel. Israel, at this point in time, for 300, 350 years, had been a, a rather loose tribal confederation. You had 12 tribes, but there was no centralized government. Each kind of tribe did what they wanted to do. God has now got a plan to move Israel into a centralized nation state with a centralized government and a king. And God raised up Samuel to facilitate the transition from this tribal confederation to a centralized government. Samuel, of course, in accordance with God's command, had anointed King Saul as the first king. We're about 25 years into Saul's reign at this chapter. So Saul is probably in his mid-50s. He's been reigning since about 30, about 25 years into his reign. And Saul has a 25-year history of routinely and habitually disobeying the Lord. So he tends to be disobedient on a real regular basis. Last week in chapters 13, 14, and 15, we saw God's final rejection of King Saul. It was three strikes and you're out, but this inning took 25 years. Here's strike one. Saul usurped the priest's God-given authority to uh, offer a sacrifice. Only the priests were to offer sacrifice. Saul did it in place of the priests, contrary to Samuel's commands. Number two, we didn't go over this, but in chapter, I think it was 14, 15, Saul has a habit of making rash vows. He'll say, as the Lord lives, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And in the last couple of chapters, when you go back and take a look in the middle of a battle, he swore a rash vow that the Israelite soldiers that were pursuing the enemy should not eat. Well, you don't get really good military performance when you're famished, right? Your blood sugar goes down, your judgment goes down. So not only did they miss a great victory as much as it could have been, but he made a rash vow that almost cost the life of his son, Jonathan. And Saul was willing to execute his son Jonathan based on the fact that Jonathan had taken some honey. I knew sugar was bad for you, but I didn't know it would kill you. Anyway, so Saul um, had a habit of making rash vows. The third one, which we saw last week, is God. Saul disobeyed God directly. God told him, take the Amalekites out, kill Agag and everything there, and they spared Agag and the best of the livestock. So God said, Samuel... I'm done. Saul is over. I'm replacing him. This chapter talks about God's process of replacing Saul and anointing Samuel. Go to chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. This was a sheep's horn that they put oil in, olive oil and other spices. And go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Now there's a time to grieve and there's a time to act. Samuel's grief had, had really progressed to the point in time where Samuel's opinion of Saul no longer agreed with God's opinion of Saul. Have you and God ever had a disagreement about something? Have you told him about it? How's it gone? Do you, have, you ever win those arguments? Okay, well, Samuel's grieving over Paul for some period of time. God says, Samuel, stop grieving over Saul. I'm making a change. Do not embrace what God has rejected. And do not reject what God has embraced. And we sinful humans do that pretty routinely. So God tells Samuel, it's time to move on. I've selected a king for myself. Now remember, Saul was the people's choice for a king. He was tall, dark, and handsome. David, we're going to find out, is God's choice. Now, God had been preparing and planning for this new king from before creation. When you take a look at David's genealogy, obviously it goes back from his father Jesse and all the way back into to Obed, to Ruth, the Moabitess, to Rahab, the harlot, to Judah. You can back up the line Jacob, Isaac, Israel, all the way back to Adam. So God knew the job description of the king of Israel. God had custom designed David's DNA, his skill sets, his background, his upbringing, so that he could fulfill God's role as king over Israel. It's all designed by God. 
What's interesting and applicable is every single person in this room is as unique as David was. Your DNA is unique to you. There is no replication of you. Completely. Yeah. No, no, that's what they say about me, dear, not you. You are unique and you are uniquely not just your DNA. God has arranged your life experiences to prepare you for the work you have yet to do. Your work is not yet done or you would be at room temperature. Since you're above room temperature, you still have work to do. Say yes. yes. How many of you are doing it? That's the point, right? Until we get permanently horizontal, we're supposed to be working, right? So God has a plan, not just for David, but a plan for the rest of your life, be that 60 years or six weeks, it doesn't matter, that's God's business. We need to be about our father's business like David was. So Samuel now is told by God that the new king will come from the house of Jesse, but he doesn't tell him which one, right, which son. He told, in the case of Saul, he said, Saul, he told Samuel, 24 hours from now, there's going to be a guy who's going to come talk to you. His name is going to be Saul. That's the one you're going to anoint. Now God tells Samuel, you go to Bethlehem and one of the sons of Jesse, I'm going to anoint. But he didn't tell him which one. And he didn't tell him which one because Samuel still has some lessons to learn. And Samuel's probably pushing 70, 75. He still has spiritual lessons. You're going to find out that God rebukes Samuel and he's been a faithful prophet for 75 years. Interesting, he goes to Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Who was born in Bethlehem? Ultimately, Jesus, Samuel, uh, by David being his prototype. Verse 2. But Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and he shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And you can underline this. I will show you what you shall do. And you shall appoint for me the one whom I designate to you. Here's the principle. As we go, God will guide. As we go, God will guide. A guide by your side is better than a map in your hand. Now, this is a rather dangerous mission, okay? Appointing a successor king while you have a paranoid, violent king that's currently on the throne. Samuel's initial reaction is one of fear and, and with some, per, some pretty good reason at this point in time. As we just mentioned, Saul was very ready in the last battle to execute his own son based on a rash vow. We're going to find out in chapter 22, Saul has all 85 priests of the Lord located in Nob executed because they gave, sat, they gave David bread, the showbread, right? He gave him sustenance. He has all the 85 priests killed. On more than one occasion in chapter 1 and 22, chapter 21 and 22, we're going to see Saul tries to kill both his own son Jonathan and David by throwing a spear at them at the dinner table. I don't know what kind of family you grew up in. <laughs> but, you know, I kind of think to yourself, you know, Saul's the king and he's sitting at the table and there's a spear right back where he can reach it. And when you're eating dinner, you know, you didn't, keep your, you didn't close your eyes when you prayed because you didn't know it was going to come at you, right? It says literally on more than one occasion, he tried to pin him to the wall over dinner. Wow. Some dad this guy is, right? So we know that Saul's at least as paranoid as Herod the Great. Herod the Great did what? He killed all the male children in Bethlehem under two years old because he thought that the Messiah, he thought that the Messiah was going to be a threat to his crown, even though he was 68 years old when he did this. How long is he going to live? I don't know. But at any rate, Saul was pretty paranoid. Here's the other thing we don't know until you look at a map and Rabbi apologize for not getting you one. Samuel lives in Ramah. He's got to go to Bethlehem. Right on the path from Ramah, to Bethlehem is Gibeah, and that's Saul's hometown. So for Samuel to get to Bethlehem, he's got to go right through Saul's hometown. That's the path. That's the road. When the prophet Samuel went someplace, it was a big deal. I mean, he was the spiritual leader in the nation. So when he moved, people paid attention. He says, I'm going to go through Saul's town, and Saul's going to say, what are you doing? Well, I'm going to go anoint your successor. Oh, that's going to go over really well. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, so when Samuel says he's going to kill me, that was no idle threat. Saul had a history of doing this kind of stuff and it gets worse. So God simply says, look, I want you to go and sacrifice to Bethlehem, in Bethlehem, and while you're there, anoint the future king. Just do it as you're going. And some people say, well, how come God just didn't have Samuel tell Saul? Well, you know, God is not obligated to tell you everything he's going to do, right? It's amazing he tells us as much as he does, given our faithfulness with it. So God calls Samuel to go, and he says, I will guide as you go. God calls us to follow him before he gives us all the details. You know, you don't ask your good shepherd for a map. What you do is you pray that you'll follow him, right? Can sheep read maps? How's your map reading about the future going? Of course, we can't read maps. We have the shepherd. The point is, follow the shepherd. Holly Colhane's teaching a shepherd leadership program around the world called Presence Points, and shepherds do three things. They provide, they provision, protection, and presence. Only when the shepherd is present do the sheep receive provision and protection. You know, our good shepherd is present, yes. What did he say? I will never leave you or forsake you. So you have a present shepherd. It's interesting that many times when we pray, we say, God, just show me what to do. Give me the map. And because we think if we have the map, we don't need the shepherd, right? If you give me the map, I'll get there on my own. No, we won't. We'll probably get distracted. So God says, much better that you have Jesus on the journey with you than he only gives you a map and lets you try and get there on your own. We don't have a very good history of that. God says to Samuel, you go. I will be with you and I'll show you what you should do when you get there. Verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said. Didn't that sound so simple? You know what you should do? You should scratch out Samuel and write your name in there. Go ahead. Scratch out Samuel, write your name in there. So Danny did just what the Lord said. So Greg did just what the Lord said. That's pretty good. You could put that on my gravestone. So Brad just did what the Lord said. Wow, that's what servants do, right? They do what the Lord says. The Lord is the master. He came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? The leaders of Bethlehem were pretty terrified, pretty scared. They knew that Samuel had anointed Saul, but they also knew that the Lord had rejected Saul and Samuel had rejected Saul as well. So everybody in the nation knows that Samuel and Saul are on the outs, right? They never saw each other again, even though they lived five miles apart. So if they ally with Samuel, they're an enemy of Saul, and they're likely to be punished for it at that point in time. They're very nervous. Verse 5, Samuel says, I come in peace. That's shalom, which is a sense of wholeness. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So he tells them the purpose of the visit is to do a sacrifice. And we say, well... Is that kind of like a barbecue? I mean, to sacrifice, does that mean you grill? You know, well, not really. When you're sacrificing in Israel, it's, a, it's, it's a, uh, the primary method of worship, right? It means to worship the Lord, to seek his favor, to confess your sins, to submit to his authority. And before you entered into God's presence, you had to prepare. You had to be purified. So when you use the word consecrate, consecrate means to set apart. It means to set apart for a sacred purpose, to, um, to dedicate for a divine purpose. So for an Israelite, if you were going to worship the Lord, you prepared the outside so you could prepare the inside. And here's what you did on the outside. You bathed, which is kind of useful, right? Then a lot of water back then, so it wasn't like you took a shower every day. So you cleaned up. You abstained from all sexual activity. You washed your clothes. You avoided anything that was ritually unclean. So when you were going to go worship, it meant you cleaned up the outside as a symbol of cleaning up the inside, right? Your heart should be pure. And so God said, prepare the outside in order to repair the inside at that point. So Samuel says, consecrate yourselves, get ready. We're going to worship the Lord at the sacrifice. And he told Jesse why he was there, right? Can you imagine what Jesse's thinking? This guy's got eight kids, eight sons. We don't know about the daughters. He's got, he does have two daughters, Zariah and, what's the other one? There's another one. There's two girls in the family. She's got 10 kids. I presume one wife, right? So one of his sons is going to rule Israel. 
that's pretty heady stuff, right? I mean, you know, some of you would look and go, wow, one of my kids is going to have a lot of power. That could be dangerous, right? <laughs> Depends on, you know, I don't know your children, but, you know, don't think mine should have that kind of power. But at any rate, verse 6, then it came about when they entered that he looked at Eliab and thought, this is Samuel, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So the scene is, he's, they've consecrated, they've done the sacrifice. Samuel is now seated in the judge's chair and Jesse is bringing his sons by oldest to youngest, right? It's literally like a Cinderella contest. We're gonna find Cinderella here and Samuel's job is to find it. So each one of these sons, these boys come by and they have got to be, their hearts gotta be going pitter patter because they don't know which one Samuel's gonna choose to be king over Israel. And you say, what an honor. And you think, well, if you're choosing king over Israel, you already know that Saul's gonna want you dead. So this is not an unmixed blessing, right? Being anointed king over Israel means the current king's gonna wanna kill you. Right? Just saying. So Samuel is looking at Eliab and he's using the cultural criteria of the day to determine who should be the king. You know, it's got to be a firstborn son, right? Got to be attractive appearance. They got to be tall, dark, and handsome. They got to have a real strong warrior physique. Eliab's the firstborn, and Samuel's convinced that this is the one. I mean, on what basis did they choose Saul? Saul was tall, dark, and handsome. It says from the shoulders and up, he was higher than anybody else. Saul was probably six, two, three, four. Back in the day, they didn't have all the excess calories we have now, so the average height was probably significantly lower than in America, but Saul was a big guy. So Samuel thinks, well, this is what God's blueprint was for Saul. This is what his blueprint's got to be for Eliab, right? This has got to be the one. Verse 7, the core of this passage, right here, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. Short people are better because I have rejected him. You didn't even get that. <laughs> for God sees, underline this, God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here's the principle. We look at the outside. God looks at the inside. We value pretty packaging. God values character content. God interrupts Samuel's thinking. Samuel's going to open his mouth and pronounce his guy king, and God says, Samuel, you're using the wrong measuring stick. You're measuring kingliness, fitness for kingliness, based on physical appearance, and that's an inadequate valuation. This is not a Mr. Universe contest. Samuel, you're looking at Saul, I mean at Eliab, with human eyes. You're looking at with human eyes. And this is God's criteria for a king, not man's criteria for a king. The people chose Saul because of his giant physical size, right? But he turned out to be a spiritual pygmy. Not a good choice. You don't need a spiritual pygmy as king over God's people. See, we get, we get fooled by appearances all the time, don't we? Say yes. How many of you have gone to the store to buy a bag of potato chips and you think, what a big bag of potato chips, and you get home and it's mostly and they pump the air in so you can't squeeze it and tell, right? I mean, these, these bags are really big. And then you go to the grocery store and you're gonna buy ice cream or coffee or yogurt. And you know what they do? The outside package is the same, but they punch up the bottom. Have you noticed that? So you get less content. You buy the package thinking, well, it's the same size as the old 16-ouncer, and then you're reading it's 14 ounces. It's not 16 ounces. And the price has gone up, right? I mean, we get fooled by They're very clever people, you know? How something is wrapped up on the inside doesn't always tell you what, on the outside, doesn't always tell you what's on the inside. Years ago, there was a garbage strike in New York City, if you can imagine. 7 million people, and uh, garbage wasn't collected for two weeks. And there was this guy I read in the Reader's Digest, he wrapped up his garbage to look like birthday presents. <laughs> Stuck in the unlocked back seat of his car and it got stolen 14 days in a row. <laughs> I thought that was clever. I'd love to have a video on the, on the guy that stole it. You know, he opens it up and you know. Justice, right, you know. It goes around, comes around. You know, have you noticed it's not just buying stuff in the store? Some people 
package themselves to look better on the outside than they are on the inside. Have you noticed that, right? We have entire industries, by the way, that make a very good living by enhancing the human package. By the way, nothing wrong with taking care of the package. Nothing wrong with taking care of the package. However, you don't buy a candy bar because you like the wrapping, right? You buy a chocolate bar because you want the chocolate, you want the contents, you want the insight. See, we humans, we're so really easily impressed with wealth and looks and charm and popularity and power and influence. And what we find out as we age is what you see is not always what you get. Years ago, there was a, for some of you, you'll, you'll appreciate this, a rock band called The Who back in the day. Yeah, way back in the day. Way, way back in the day. There were a little song called, No One Knows What It's Like Behind Blue Eyes, right? Behind Blue Eyes. We have lots of people in our culture that look normal, right? They look normal. They ain't normal, right? You know when you know they're not normal? When they go postal. That's when you know they're not normal, when the behavior is like, whoa, right? I never saw that coming. How could they do that? They looked so normal. Now, when I look at you, you don't even look normal. It's okay. It's... <laughs> Definitely abnormal. Abby normal, man, my new hero. That's right. You know, when we look with human eyes, you know what we see? We see a young person, we see an old person, we see a skinny person, we see a heavy person. We look at someone who looks like us, we look at someone who doesn't look like us, and we usually only see them with human eyes, don't we? And we make judgments about them based on what we see and we reliably get fooled. The Who also wrote a song called Won't Get Fooled Again. Right? Yeah, right. We reliably get fooled, and you'll get fooled this week too. God says, look past the exterior, look past the packaging. Samuel, I look at the heart. I look at the core of who people are. Now, in the Bible, the heart represents the totality of who we are. It represents your intellect, your emotions, your will, your motives. It represents who you are and no one's watching except God, of course. Our heart represents the essence of who we are and God has some very, very disturbing things to say about the heart. If you look at Jeremiah 17, verse nine, this is God's definition of the core of human nature. This is the core. The heart is more deceitful than anything. He's talking about your heart and my heart. Not just your neighbor's heart. We know your neighbor has a bad heart. Right? Be talking about us. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's so deceitful, no one can understand it. Verse 10 should give us great hope. I, the Lord, search the hearts. I test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. The truth of it is, we don't accurately even understand our own heart. Right? Forget the heart, man. Our minds are confused. <laughs> Y'all got it now. You know where the... Okay, no problem, Tom. It's easy. I, I'm used to getting interrupted, man. I interrupt myself all the time. That's why I drink coffee. So we don't understand our own heart, let alone somebody else's hearts. We trust our own conclusions. We believe our own eyes, which routinely deceive us. And God said to Jeremiah, I am a reliable guide to the heart. I test the mind. God saw inside Eliab, that's the oldest son of Jesse, and what was inside Eliab disqualified him from being king. So interesting question. When God looks inside your life, what does he see? What does he see? I'll tell you what he wants to see. He wants to see his image. He wants to see the character that looks more and more like Jesus. That's what Andrew talked about this morning. Christ-like character. We tend to see what people are like right now today. How many of you know some people that right now today have a lot of work to do? You know anybody like that? 
You know how God sees those people? What they will be when they surrender to him. What they can become. And we need to look at people, especially in our families, about what God can make them, not what they are just now. Because 35 years ago, you weren't anything to look at spiritually. Right? Say amen. How far has he brought you in the last three decades? A long way. God's the very faithful God. So ask for eyes that he sees. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab, made him pass for Samuel. Samuel said, neither is the one short Lord chosen this one. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither is the one chosen this one. So God continues to reject candidates that appear more than adequate for the job of king. But God alone knows the job description. So he knows what he needs. Verse 10. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your children? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes in. Here's the principle. Ask God to open your eyes so that you will see what he sees. Ask God to open your eyes so you will see what he sees. Apparently, Jesse thinks so little of his youngest son that he didn't even bother to invite him to the feast. How's that? It was inconceivable to Jesse that his youngest son would even be considered as a candidate for king. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even call David by name. You know what he calls him? Uh, the youngest, right? He's viewed as just a kid who tends sheep, you know, unimportant, obscure, Jesse is viewing his son David with human eyes instead of with God's eyes. You know who we view with human eyes the most? Our own children and our grandchildren. We should see them from God's point of view. Because when we look at it from our point of view, you know what we do? We get hopeless. We get in despair. We go, our children are not what they should be. And God says, yeah, this is news, neither were you, and neither are you yet, right? Ask God to give you eyes to see people in your world from his perspective, not your own perspective. See, David's viewed by his dad as just kind of a hired hand. Literally, he's a hired hand, right? He certainly didn't appreciate all his children. He certainly didn't teach his children to respect each other because David was not well treated by his older brothers. You'll find out that in a couple chapters. Many, many times God overturns human expectations. See, the eldest of that culture had a lot of power. God bypasses the elder brother pretty frequently and chooses the younger. Abraham was not the oldest. Isaac was not the oldest. Jacob was not the oldest. Joseph was not the oldest. Gideon was not the oldest. Neither is David. Have you ever noticed that God's calling David to be king? Have you ever noticed that God tends to call people that are already busy? God very seldom calls sloths to do something in the kingdom form, right? Someone who's sitting around and says, I got nothing going. God says, I got something for you. He usually calls busy people, right? Moses was doing what? Tending sheep. Gideon's threshing wheat. Elisha, when he got called, was plowing a field, right? Nehemiah was a key advisor to the king. Peter, James, Andrew, John. What are they doing? They're working all night as fishermen. These guys are hard workers at that point. Matthew 25, Jesus said, what you want to hear is well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things like sheep. I'll put you over many things like the nation of Israel. That's the message to David. The message to us is if you don't manage your pennies, you're never going to get trusted with dollars, right? Manage what you currently have. David was a faithful shepherd of sheep and now he gets to be a faithful shepherd of people. Verse 12. So he went and brought him in. Now he was ready with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now David is described as ruddy. Some people think he was red hair. It really talks about being fair skinned with sparkling eyes. David's family must have been stunned. Right? This is the runt. Right? 
This is the kid, the youngest brother, the sheep herder who's now anointed king over us. You got to be kidding, right? This reminds you of what? Joseph. Remember Joseph and his brothers? Same thing. Now, the most important thing that happened right here was not Samuel anointing David with oil. That was not the most important thing. The most important thing was God anointing David with the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's what was critical. In the Old Testament period, the Holy Spirit came upon people selectively and temporarily. Selectively and temporarily. When God assigned you a task in the Old Testament that required divine help, he gave you the Holy Spirit. Temporarily and just for that job description. The Holy Spirit, by the way, in the Old Testament is not a means of salvation. It's simply empowering people for service. In the New Testament, from the day of Pentecost forward, the gift of the Holy Spirit is universal and permanent. As a matter of fact, the greatest asset you have in this life is nothing you own. It's no relationship you have on a human level. The greatest asset you have, as a matter of fact, the only asset you have is the Holy Spirit that lives inside you. God lives in us. If that doesn't blow your mind, you don't understand the scope of what we're talking about here. It says the spirit of the Lord rest came upon David mightily. Obviously, his job description was pretty big, so it needed to happen. For us in the New Testament, at the moment of salvation, every follower of Jesus receives the Holy Spirit in full measure. You've got all of him, not a part of him. The Holy Spirit lives in every Christian permanently and God will never withdraw his spirit from his children. As Pastor Roger said last week, the Holy Spirit is always present in your life. He's resident in your life, even though you may not treat him as president of your life. You can grieve the Holy Spirit when you disobey, but when you obey the Holy Spirit, you become filled and directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, which happened to David at this point in time. Now, it's interesting. This is the very first mention of David in the entire Bible. And the first time he's mentioned, it's connected with the filling of the Spirit, which is interesting. There is only one Bible character named David. We got a lot of Judas, a lot of, you know, we got more than one John. There's a lot of names in Bible we have more. There's only one David. This guy is it. More is written about David than any other human character in Scripture. There's 66 chapters in the Bible on David specifically. And we're going to find out in the subsequent weeks, he is the most human of all characters. So David's been chosen. Saul's been rejected. The Spirit of God comes upon David. We're going to find out in the next verse, Spirit of God departs from Saul. This is really the fulcrum. This is the center point of this entire book. It's the transfer of God's blessing and God's power from Saul to David. Verse 14. How old is David? David's about 15. 14, 15. Now the Spirit of the Lord, actually that's not true. He's probably between 12 and 13. That's not divine revelation. That's, I think that's fairly well established. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. This bothers a lot of people. Saul's disobedience had separated him from God and Saul is operating in his own strength, his own wisdom, his own power. And God is now going to allow Saul to have his way. God's going to allow Saul to experience life without God, without God's protection, without God's direction. Saul is going to experience Jesus' words when he told his disciples, without me you can do zero. Exactly right. You want life without God, you got it. So God dispatches a demon to discipline Saul by means of fear and terror. What Saul is experiencing is hell on earth. Literally, hell on earth. Separated from God, we know that's hell, right? Life with demons, he's terrorized. You're going to look at Paul, Saul and you're going to see increasing fear, increasing anger, increasing irrational behavior, increasing paranoia across the board. He's behaving without God. He has no protection of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, anytime we're at war with God, how many of you know people that are at war with God? You know anybody that's at war with God? Their life is filled with discord. They're not peaceful people. If they're at war with God, you know what they are? They're at war with people. And they're at war with themselves. You get life of anger. If you are at peace with God, 
the core of your life is in harmony. The core. I didn't say your circumstances were wonderful. Your circumstances can be very painful, but if you have the Holy Spirit and you are at peace with God, the core of your life is in harmony. That's what David has and Saul does not have. And you say, well, why would God allow Saul to suffer rejection from God? Saul got what he wanted. For 25 years, he said, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to be disobedient. I don't want to listen. I want to do it my way. God says, have it your way. Without me. That's what you want. You have life without me. Now Saul is getting a taste, literally, of hell. Now God has purpose in everything he does. One of the things that God's going to do, Saul, God is going to use Saul's suffering to get David transferred to the court for an internship program. Right? Verse 15. Saul's servants then said to him, Now behold, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. That's an interesting diagnosis, right? Seems as though everybody's got this figured out, right? Verse 16. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the guitar, I mean the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. Apparently, Saul's only relief from this demonic oppression was through music. It's interesting, if you look at verse 16, the first phrase, it appears that Saul is so violent and so irrational and his servants are so scared of him that they ask him to command them. You know, read the first phrase, right? What do they say? Let our Lord now command your servants to stand before you, blah, blah, blah. They're not going to give him a suggestion. They're going to ask him to command them. Saul is irrational and they know it. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then it just so happened. Verse 18. One of the young men answered and said, behold. You know, we don't talk that way, behold. But, but, but behold means, well, hell, I just remembered. Got a brainwave, right? I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a... Now, this is some job description. This is a character description and a skill set. A skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and he's 12. Prudent in speech. I love it. And a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. Here's the principle. When the Lord is on the inside, there will be evidence on the outside. When the Lord is on the inside, there will be evidence on the outside. Healthy trees bear fruit. There's a lot of different metaphors I could have gone with. I thought this, keep it simple. So Saul agrees with his servant's suggestion. He needs somebody who's going to play music to, to relieve him of this oppression. And it just so happens that somebody in front of Saul says, I happen to know somebody that might fit the bill, right? It's kind of a rather complete description and a very unusual one. We're looking for a poet-warrior, right? Unusual combination of skills and temperaments. See, God's future job description for David involved writing 73 of the Psalms. So we need a poet, right? He's going to write 73 of the Psalms. David also organizes all the musical worship of the temple. Brings in instruments, arranges for the singers. I mean, he's the impresario in a, in a secular sense. He organizes the musical worship for the temple. But God had also planned for David to be a warrior. As a matter of fact, he was going to be at war his whole life. David's job description from that standpoint was to subdue every nation that bordered Israel and bring them under the authority of Yahweh so that David's son Solomon would have 40 years of peace to build the temple. That's God's strategy. So he's going to make David a warrior so he can have Solomon build the temple. So David's got to be a poet. David's got to be a warrior. It says he's prudent in speech. It means he's wise in planning and advice and execution. But the best is last. The most important character description of David is what? What's the last thing it says about him? The Lord is with him. When's the last time you described somebody you know like that. Somebody says, what do you know about John? Well, the most important thing is the Lord is with John. Wow. 
Is that, you know anybody like that that you would just automatically describe and say, the Lord is with this person? Here's the interesting question. How did they know the Lord was with them? What is the character and conduct of a person that the Lord is with, right? How would you know? When a person's under the control of the Holy Spirit, you know it by their attitudes and their actions. Galatians 5, to 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, there's nine of them. Can you know them? Love, joy, peace, patience. Then we have the nesses, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the last one I hate, self-control. That's the last one, right? That's the one that makes all the others happen. Actually, the Spirit makes them all happen, but that's our role in that part. So the Holy Spirit is life, and God's life in you bears the fruit of godly character. Andrew talked about that this morning as well. Here's a principle. People that are saved are people who are changed. Amen? People who are saved are people who are changed. If Jesus, does, if Jesus doesn't make a change in your life, then you don't have change. You don't have Jesus. I got forward theology for you. No change, no Jesus. You cannot have God, the Holy Spirit, come and take up residence in your life and not make a difference. God is not impotent. When he comes in, he comes in to take over. Amen? Amen. All right, you have been changed. David gives evidence of the life of the Spirit by his character and by his conduct, and he's 12 years old. Fascinating to me. It should be obvious in our lives, as it is in David's life, that the Lord is with us. Even more importantly, that the Lord is in control of us. That's where the self-control comes, spirit control. Verse 19. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with you, the flock. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by his son David. Now you look at this and you say, well, big deal. You know, donkeys were pretty hard to come by. If Jesse had a donkey to give away, he must have been a reasonably prosperous guy. Here's a spare donkey, right? It's like you say, well, I got a spare car sitting in the garage. Take it. It's a gift. Verse 21. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly. Boy, is that going to change. And he became his armor bearer. Here's the principle... <laughs> And I'm smiling because, baby, I understand this one, and I think I got a lot way to go. When God leads your life in an unexpected direction, it's not a detour. It's the path. When God leads your life in an unexpected direction, it's not a detour. It's the path. David's probably now... 14 to 15 years old. Saul's in his mid-50s. It's been some time since the anointing. An armor bearer is a very highly trustworthy position. Saul, in complete ignorance, is training his replacement. He didn't even know. If he knew, once he finds out, he's going to try and kill him multiple times. But he doesn't know yet. This is the mystery of God's design. That God would move a future King David into wicked Saul's court to teach David how to rule and to teach David how not to rule. Now, if you and I were in charge and we had a 14 or 15-year-old young man as a son who was filled with the Spirit, we would not send him into a wicked king's court who had a habit of killing his enemies. We would say, well, that's probably not good parenting. That would not be our design. But God moves in unexpected ways? Has God moved in your life unexpectedly in the last year? Oh, yeah. Last week? Yep. Yeah, okay. This morning? Okay, yeah, I got that. Okay. Reminds us, it reminds us of Israel and Egypt. Here's the picture. God moves Israel to Egypt to get them out of wicked Canaan so we can build them from 70 people into 2 million over a 400-year period, and then bring the nation back and conquer Canaan and give them their homeland. Satan is not stupid. 
Satan is influencing Pharaoh to, number one, enslave the Israelites, and number two, to kill all the male Israelite babies. Now, if that works, and you can kill all the male Israelite babies, the Israelite women will marry who? Egyptian men, and with three generations, the nation ceases to exist. The nation's absorbed into Egypt. Satan's point is, if there's no nation of Israel, there's no Messiah. If there's no Messiah, I get to stay large and in charge, because Messiah is going to kill me. He knows that. God has a, has a strategy from eternity past. He arranges for Moses to be the deliverer. He arranges for Moses to get raised by who? <clears throat> Pharaoh's daughter. Where? Inside Pharaoh's court. So Acts 7 tells us for 40 years, Moses gets all the training, all the education, military, statecraft, political skills, organizing big masses of people, which he's certainly going to need that, for 40 years in the court of the Egyptians. God uses everything the Egyptians taught him to lead two million slaves out of Egypt into the promised land. And Satan paid the tuition for Moses' education. You think that's unexpected? Uh, wouldn't have been my plan. See, we get into it with God. Here's what we do. We have expectations about how God should be directing our life, right? Say yes, you do. God's going to be doing this and this and this, and we want a predictable God. And we want God to give us the map. We want him to give us the map. God, between now and D-Day, I'll be out here at 85, right? Kind of. What, what, what's going to happen between now and then? You give me the map. And by the way, if I have the map, thank you very much, I'll take it from there. That's why we want the map. Because we don't want him correcting us, right? Our, our pride, deep down as believers, we really want a shepherd. We know we need a shepherd. But our flesh says, just give me the map. God says, no, because a sheep with a map is going to get eaten by a wolf. The map's not going to protect the sheep, right? Any more than you guys can follow a GPS. GPS leads people into the lake about a half dozen times a year. So when God moves your life in an unexpected direction, here's the issue. He just disagreed with my map. Ah, we're supposed to turn right here. That's what the map said. God's turning left. Now you got a problem. Either you're going to follow your map and disagree with the shepherd, which is going to lead to some interesting conversations and conflict, or you're going to say, the map is not the issue. My obedience is the issue to the shepherd. So when God leads your life in an unexpected direction, it's not a detour. It's not, we're going to go back to my plan. We just got to get through this, then we'll get back on track with my map. No, we're not getting back on track with your map, right? It's the new, it's where the God wants you to go. It's the path. You know what that means? Surrender the map, right? Your job is not to follow the map. All the map you need is in here. It's already written down. You don't have to invent one. It's written down. Follow the shepherd. It's the new path. Does that make sense? I didn't say you'd like it. Does it make sense? All right, verse 22. Saul said to Jesse, Now let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. <clears throat> David has been given tenure now. Saul is basically saying to Jesse, David was here temporarily. I'd like him here permanently. He's done a really good job. We're going to give him tenure. We're going to give him a permanent assignment at court. I want him available, on, not just on call. I want him here. Verse 23. So it came about that whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Apparently, this demonic oppression is a pretty regular occurrence, pretty habitual, frequent. Now, music alone cannot drive out demons. Understand that. But the Holy Spirit empowered David to use music to drive away the demonic spirit with music and give Saul relief. Now, this says something. Music is a very powerful medium. Very powerful medium. There's a reason we worship with music, because music has a way of not only engaging the mind, 
but engaging the spirit. And sometimes it moves right, right through the mind into the heart. Be very careful what you let in your ears. Be very, Satan is not stupid. He's going to use music to influence you just like God will. So be wise in terms of what you're listening to. In addition, David's music therapy gave him favor with Saul. You know why that's important? His intern's not up, up yet. He's got more to learn. He's going to be in Saul's court for some time. There's an old song that says, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. And I know that God is moving in some of our lives, as a matter of fact, in all our lives, in ways that right now we may not be able to add up, right? The way we think he should be moving is not moving. His timing is not our timing. He has our lives going in directions that to us are not logical. We would prefer that he would do it our way. How many of you have lived long enough to know that your way is a pretty reliable train wreck? <laughs> it's just, we're just talking when. We're just talking when. So, Tom, you can get ready, but I'll, I'll review. Some basic principles to remember. As we go, God will guide this week I know what we want to do. We want to say, God, show me what this week's going to bring. Give me, at least give me seven days, right? Tell me what's going to happen on Thursday. No, you go out on Thursday morning and God will guide. And you know when God will give you, he will give you what you need on Thursday. You know when he'll give you what you need on Thursday? On Thursday. You know when he's going to give you what you need on Friday? On Friday. As we go, God will guide. A guide by your side is better than a map in your hand. Because you can misread the map. That's why we have the Holy Spirit to open the Word. The Word is the map. We have the Holy Spirit to be our guide. Verse number two. We look on the outside. God looks on the inside. We value pretty packaging. Boy, do we ever view pretty packaging. God values character content. Number three. Ask God to open your eyes so that you will see what He sees. Number four. When the Lord is on the inside... Or when the Lord is in control on the inside, there will be evidence on the outside. Healthy trees bear fruit, dead trees bear no fruit. And lastly, when God leads your life in an unexpected direction, it's not a detour, it's the path. Okay, I love you guys. Now that you know, 